You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. Yes, this is the Mining and Energy Union podcast. I'm Tim Brunero. Well, unionists in the Illawarra have been celebrating the life of Mining and Energy Union life member Fred Moore. He passed away in January, just nine months short of his 100th birthday. He loved the union. Here's Fred talking on Andrew Denton's TV show, Enough Rope, in 2004. The union is everything. It's the lifeblood uh, of the thing. Without the union, uh, there, there would be no safety factors. There would be no first aid equipment. There'd be no bathhouses, long service leave. All these things had to be won. Nothing was ever given benevolently. And in lots of cases, the miners paved the way and uh, backed other unions, backed them to If they could break through, the miners could break through, there was a chance for the others. So the union is the lifeblood and is still today. And that's why I can't understand when I hear of pits and other places where there's non-union labour, because without the union, that's nothing. Yes, he loved the union all right. At his funeral, Mining and Energy Union General President Tony Ma talked about how much Fred loved the union. The simple truth is that Fred loved the Miners' Federation and we all loved him right back. Okay, so he was much loved in the union movement. But why? Well, to find that out, we have to rewind a little bit. Fred Moore was born in 1922 in Cobar in western New South Wales. When he was seven, the Great Depression struck. The whole community was dirt poor, and many only got fed because of the communal soup kitchen the community set up. Fred started in the copper mines in Cobar at 14. One of Fred's mates from DAPDO, Dennis Lennon, would often chat with Fred on a Saturday morning when they met up at the local TAB to put a few bucks on the ponies. The former wool classer and Victorian secretary of the NUW says Fred once opened up to him about just how tough mining was in Cobar in the 1930s. He told me about one circumstance where to get to to work, they had to spend three quarters of an hour climbing down rope ladders uh, to get to to where the work was, and then at the end of the shift, another three quarters of an hour climb up the rope ladders to get out uh, at the end of the day. Miners were very militant in Cobar and Broken Hill, which was fairly close. Well, close by Australian standards, but the mining communities in both towns were certainly very close. Fred and uh, Fred's dad and his uncles were quite militant, not by choice but out of necessity. The Broken Hill miners in 1919 to 1921 had a massive 18-month-long strike, and out of that strike came the world's first 25-hour week for blue-collar workers. And one of the big disputes that he witnessed, that his dad and his uncles were involved in, is when they were on strike and the company brought in scabs to operate and take ore out of the mine. Couldn't take as much out as the miners would produce but they would shift the ore out in wheelbarrows with great big wooden handles on them. So um, the miners waited, organised a raid on the company store one evening and they sawed the right handle of every single wheelbarrow. 
which meant that the company couldn't use them. You can't wheel a one-handled wheelbarrow, certainly not full of ore. But they kept the, the handle, the big wooden handle, as weapons to defend themselves if the company were going to bring in police and security people to protect the scabs. Fred and his family moved to Newtown in central Sydney to be near the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital so his dad could receive treatment for the lung disease, silicosis. Of course, he contracted that at work in the Cobar copper mines. During this time, Fred met his wife, May, and mastered the harmonica. But the only instrument that the family could afford was a harmonica. And they bought Fred a harmonica and paid it off in instalments. Years later, he'd play that harmonica on Andrew Denton's Enough Road. In 1950, Fred moved to the Illawarra with his young family to work at BHP's underground Nebo mine. The coking coal the miners produced was used at the nearby Port Kembla Steelworks. He worked with men who'd just spent 10 years winning back rights lost in the 1930s in the years after the Great Depression of 1929. In 1941, the miners won a pension so they could retire at 60. He worked with people who had to rebuild the union from the Great Depression. And uh, in that period, I mean, a massive unemployment, most of the conditions that they had, even at that time, uh, had been stripped away from them. Uh, some of those veterans that Fred started with have been involved in the campaigns to win pensions for miners. Uh, in those days, in the hard contract days, there was no retirement age and there was little or nothing of an old age pension. So there were very old people working and in chronic sort of health conditions in the mines. The Miners' Federation, one of its big campaigns in 1941, won miners as the first blue collar unionists anywhere in Australia a, a miners' pension. During the Second World War, miners ensured record production to aid the war effort against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan, and they were told when the war ended, paying conditions would improve. But in 1945, when it did end, nothing happened. Well, until 1949. And in 1949, and massive votes throughout the whole coal industry in Australia, they voted for a national strike. They went on strike for six weeks. During that strike, many union leaders were jailed and the union's funds were being confiscated. But they didn't get everything they wanted. They went back to work, but they did win long service leave. And they won their highest, and still is actually, the best form of long service leave in the country. I think it's the case even today. At eight years service, you got 13 weeks pay for long service leave. But they also uh, fought for things like workers' compensation because there was quite a high rate of injuries and deaths in the mines. And they won a very good compensation system. They get 52 weeks on full pay and a further 26 weeks on half pay. And if you've got to be cavilled, as they call it, out of the industry, well, 
they make sure that you're fairly well looked after with your compensation payments. So, Fred had been schooled quickly by the turbulent industrial times he had lived through. When he entered the industry in 1950, black lung was common. The union was yet to force companies to ventilate mines properly. Many of the miners that he worked with had been in the industry for a long time and quite a few of them suffered from the deadly black lung disease, which is a disease caused by inhaling coal dust. A lot of them were very debilitated, many of them died. So for Fred, health and safety was always his primary concern. And the resistance from the mine operator was very strong. Nebo being a newer pit wasn't probably as severe as some of the others, but the relations between management and the workers had been well set, and BHP were quite adept at bringing their own people, their own management, through a certain structure, all the way through to the top, and were particularly hard to deal with. They were the biggest company in Australia at the time. Uh, they knew how to use their industrial muscle. When mechanisation came to the industry, Fred insisted the production bonuses coal cutters swinging picks at the coalface had enjoyed were passed on to the whole production crew. But they insisted that everybody involved in the production process got an equal part of the production bonus. So there was no first or second rate choices there. That was something Fred was very strong on because he could see the potential if the bonus was being split up by giving much more to the bloke in the face and all the way down the differences and the divisions that could cause and the opportunities it would provide for the company to be able to divide the workers. So the production bonuses went into a pool and everybody got the same bonus. By now, Fred had been elected Lodge President at Nebo and was on the District Council and the Union Central Council. He was sent by the Union to tour coal mining operations in Europe. But in Britain, there was a problem with his accommodation. And while he was in Britain, out of respect, the Union was extremely strong. It was nationalised, it was well resourced. They put, uh, they put Fred and Arthur up at the uh, Claridge's in Mayfair. And it lasted a night. Because uh, Fred couldn't stand the snobbery and all the subservience around the place and they asked to be moved the next day to a more modest headquarters and they, and they were. In 1982, during an economic recession, there was a stay-down strike at the Camira Colliery after all workers were sacked. A number of miners went down the mine and refused to come out. After the Liberal Party Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, refused to meet with the miners, they decided, well, we'll go to Canberra. So they organised a couple of trains, filled them full of steel workers and miners and their families. Uh, we organised buses and there were um, a couple of thousand people descended on Canberra when Parliament was sitting. And it would have been in November and it was very, very hot. I remember I was there. But Fred was on the megaphone out the front leading the charge. We got across, it was the old Parliament House. We got across from the building, they had little barricades up and um, to keep people away from the Parliament House itself, just on the, the front where the Aboriginal Embassy is now. And um, they didn't have many police on duty for some reason, security wasn't what it is today. But anyway, Fred's on the megaphone and he's saying, OK, if he won't come out to talk to us, let's go in and talk to him. 
and there was a lot of very angry and frustrated steel workers and miners there. So they pushed across where the little barricades were, went up the front steps of Parliament House. I was up the front with Fred, and remembered it very vividly, but the crush from the back was such that it forced the people up the front. The doors just, boom, popped open. And before you knew it, we were all in the lobby. And Fred was there and he took control of the situation. He got on his megaphone and Parliament was sitting over to the left and he told everybody, hey, this far, no further, you know, because we've got to respect, we don't, uh, we want a meeting with the Prime Minister, but we're not going to be invading Parliament. It's a democratic institution. So he persuaded people to withdraw gracefully, which is a bit difficult because everybody's rushing in and we're trying to get people out. Uh, the result for that was that Fraser did actually meet, he agreed to meet with a deputation from the miners and uh, everybody thought we had some sort of a, a little win there and they got on the trains and they went back to Wollongong but that wasn't enough so they decided to march to Sydney and they had a right to work march in December 1982, there were thousands of people took part in it, they went to the state parliament. Fraser lost the election in 1983, and the miners, well, they took some credit for it. It was also in the 80s another of Fred's pet issues came to the fore. There was a problem with the award, which meant if miners went on strike over safety, they could get dudded on their annual leave, sick leave and long service leave. So when they went on strike over issues, they lost. I mean, automatically they lost, they didn't qualify for their full benefits. So. That was a big bone of contention for a long time and Fred was very instrumental in leading the campaign to have the strings abolished. And uh, they finally managed to get the strings abolished in the award in the early 1980s. Women and their role in the broader union movement was central to Fred's thinking. He had a simple philosophy. And he would always say, there's no dispute ever being won unless it was won around the kitchen table. Fred rallied to women's sides on the famous Port Kembla Steelworks picket, set up for four women who had applied for work but who had been sent packing. He was adamant women should be able to work in mining as well. In the early 1980s, the issue came to a real head in the Illawarra, in the steelworks, when there were a group of women, four women, who applied for a job in the steelworks. They were the pioneering women who went in and got women and BHP to change their mind and get women the right to walk into steelworks. Robin and her colleagues were outside the steelworks on a picket for months and months and months. And Fred would be down there with them, bringing people from the, the women from the miners' auxiliaries and bringing other people and rallying the community around them. But Fred's activism went far beyond his pit, the broader coal mining industry or even the nearby steelworks. He was active in his local community in Dapto in the Illawarra. He was appalled at the racism he saw against Aboriginal people. When he saw Aboriginal people being refused service in cafes and shops, he set out to put it right. Aboriginal women would have to bring in white women of an equal size to try and address for them because they weren't allowed to do it themselves. Fred organised through the Labour Council boycotts of those businesses. They'd settle pickets, they'd refuse deliveries, they would do all those things until they changed their racist attitudes. One of the reasons Fred fought against racism his whole life was due to his experiences during the Great Depression. When he was only seven, he saw firsthand when everyone has nothing, 
how equal we truly all are. Fred's first association with Aboriginal people was in his childhood at Cobar, when they were next to, they lived next to a reservation. His earliest best mates were Aboriginal kids. Uh, his earlier associations too, in the soup kitchens, when he was a kid going to school, was with Chinese people. So he hadn't got a racist bone in his body, and he saw people as equals, irregardless of their, their gender, their skin, their race, anything. They were just people to be treated on their merits. In 1961, he and local elders formed the Illawarra Aboriginal Advancement League. He campaigned hard in the lead-up to the 1967 referendum to change the constitution to recognise Aboriginal people as, well, people. When they got the referendum, it was Fred who collected more signatures than anybody else in Australia because he would take the Aboriginal people, women and men, down to mass meetings of the miners, six or seven thousand strong, set up tables get up and make a speech and get people to come along and sign the petitions, take away petitions and get their families to do it. With the steel workers, he did the same. Anywhere there were meetings for years beforehand, Fred had the, uh, was gathering pet- uh, names and signatures on petitions for Aboriginal people. Such was his service that Fred Moore was initiated into the local Aboriginal community. Uh, the, uh, the Aboriginal people not only greatly respected and loved them, but took them in as one of their own and took him up the mountains for two days and he was initiated as an honorary elder in the Aboriginal community. Many members of the local Aboriginal community attended Fred's recent funeral. Before anyone even spoke, they paid tribute. Uncle Richard Davis, an elder of the Darrell Nation, which includes the Illawarra area, spoke very emotionally at the funeral. Mr Moore was a handful of non-Aboriginal people to be made an honorary member of the Aboriginal community. And Aboriginal people don't take that lightly. We take that seriously and to be an honorary member of an Aboriginal community, you must be something special. And he was, he was a selfless man. He's a legend in our community, I think, right across the board. I remember as a young bloke growing up at Kumadichi Reserve, the meetings Mr Moore and my elders would have to continue the fight for housing, health, education, self-determination, for Aboriginal people to be allowed, go to a local hotel, have a beer, go into a shop, try clothes on. It's not that long ago, but Mr Moore... He put a stop to that. But Fred wasn't satisfied. He even fought injustice overseas. And when he looked overseas in the 1980s and early 90s and saw injustice, he was very quick to act. He was appalled at the racist apartheid regime in South Africa. Not long after Nelson Mandela was jailed, originally jailed, Fred moved the resolution at the Southern District Board of Management about support for the ANC. But more than that, he moved that they strike an annual levy in support of the ANC, and they did. And I think they were the first union in the world to do that. So when um, Nelson Mandela was released and came to Australia a few months later, 
and he was meeting people at the uh, St Mary's Crypt in Sydney. Fred was one of the people specially invited to come along and meet him so he could express their appreciation. Even in the 2000s, when Fred was 80 years old, he was still active in his local community of DAPTO. In 2001, former ACTU President Jenny George was running for the federal seat of Throsby for the ALP. Fred was her biggest asset. Fred was a prized asset at one of my very large booths at the Rivenwood Centre in DAPTO. And of course, whenever Fred was on the booth, the lines would grow and grow and everyone wanted to stop and chat to Fred, not just to vote. In 2007, we did remarkably well in the Throsby seat. Um, We got, I think, almost two-thirds of the primary vote. And Fred and I joked later on, I said, gosh, every time you're on the booth, everyone wants to stop and talk. And he said, well, don't grumble about that, because we might have got a few women that I've known for a long time who would have voted Liberal. After chatting to me for a while, they decided they were going to vote for you. So he laughed at that. But he was like that. Everybody loved Fred. They saw him as an honest and genuine contributor to their community and he would have had an enormous influence. At Fred's 90th birthday in 2012, Jenny George got another chance to see the legacy of Fred's working with the community over decades and decades. We'd been invited to Fred's 90th birthday and it was at our local community centre. Fred lived round the corner and we were down in West Apto. Anyhow, we didn't expect it um, to be anything other than a small family gathering. We thought it'd probably be in one of the function rooms. We got to um, the Rivenwood Centre and lo and behold, we walked into the auditorium and it was chock-a-block full. There must have been hundreds of people there, including some of the famous Dragons players, the community was represented, the politicians, the miners, they were all there. And it was just a real manifestation of the love that people had for Fred and the love that he returned to his community. He was certainly revered. He was like a living legend. The current ACTU secretary, Sally McManus, spoke at Fred's funeral. Before she spoke, she passed on well wishes from a former ACTU president, Sharon Burrow, who is currently the general secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Fred was the embodiment of our shared values. He was not just a giant of a trade unionist, one of the greatest humanitarians I've ever known. A humble man who demonstrated respect for workers and neighbours, as well as family and friends. But he extended his care and commitment to a deep solidarity with workers and fighters for social justice everywhere. For those of us who are privileged to know Fred and listen to his quiet conviction and authority, It inspired us to do more. Fred was not simply a great of his own time, but he was in fact probably one of the most respected unionists ever to try and make a difference in Australia. He was one of the most respected unionists across movements and generations of our time and just one of just a handful of elders from our greatest generation of unionists, the children of the the Depression. Sally McManus says Fred's isms or the maxims that he lived by, were now famous in the region and in the broader union movement. At the end of the day, it's unity or nothing. What has been won must be maintained. We are only as strong as our weakest link. Those with power have a responsibility to those without. The past we inherit, the future we build. 
These principles that Fred lived by are the ones he taught and they are the ones every trade unionist should live by. The fact that Fred lived by these principles is why he was so deeply respected. So, why was it that Fred was so revered? And what can we learn from him? Fred commanded enormous respect from everyone. And I think it was because he had a certain very, very quiet charisma that was built on a steely determination and a hunger for social and industrial justice. But he always saw the best in people. And he would always sit people down around the table and they might be having very, very subjective, severe disagreements. And he never lost focus of what the main issue was. And he would ask them to keep that in mind. He understood, always understood the value of unity and solidarity. And you could argue your points till the cows came home and have all sorts of disagreements in the room. But once you came to a common decision, it was everybody had to go out there and fight for it. And it was always on the basis of equality and a fair go. Fred had a way of bringing the best out in people. Fred always taught me was the value of being a good listener. Don't rush to your own value judgments. Have a listen to what people are saying. And if you think you know a little bit better than them, bring them along gently, you know. Listen to them respectfully, talk to them respectfully. But Fred would not sit across, I mean, I've often made some terrible bloody blues, walking with Fred and had some terrible subjective judgments. And he'd pull you up very gently. He wouldn't say you're an idiot, son, you know. Shut up and listen. But he would take you through very, very gently because I think he saw the best in everybody. And he had this way of being able to bring the best out in you. You always learned something. Every time you spoke to Fred, you always learned something. And you always came away feeling an awful lot better. And Fred, as many people say, had absolutely no ego. He didn't have an ego. Now, I'm not saying he didn't have self-regard or self-respect. He certainly did. But he didn't have an ego that needed to be praised and fed. And that made an awful lot of people very secure around them. But it also gave him the quality of being genuine when he spoke and passionate when he spoke. Fred was one of those people where no one has a bad word to say about him. I have never, ever heard anybody say a bad word about Fred. Nothing but good for him. And I can't think of anybody else, even the legendary leaders. They had their rivals and they had people whose toes they stood on. But the only one I've never heard people be critical about or say a bad word about was Fred. Speaking at his funeral, Tony Marr, General President of the Mining and Energy Union, said he'd never heard anyone utter a bad word about Fred. I've been privileged to know a great many legends of the Miners' Federation and a few of the villains, but I have never met anyone who is so deeply respected and loved by so many over such a long time. And Fred would go on to repeat those basic Fredisms well into retirement, even on TV with Andrew Denton. But today you deal with the transnationals. The miners today are under entirely different pressure. They're dealing with offshore cartels who make their decisions for the Australian miners in the boardrooms of London, New York, Tokyo, the Bahamas or somewhere else. And then they come out here and try and bring the same conditions that they enforce in South Africa or somewhere else onto the Australian miners. And all we get out of it, 
We might get a bit of wages and that they might get a bit of royalty, but mainly the Australian people only get the holes in the ground and that's about all they'll get left with with these people and they'll try and take every bit of conditions that the miners have won and not only miners but every worker. They've extended the hours from 7 to 12 and how anyone can say that they can work 12 hours comfortably underground and that it's, it's nearly impossible, but they're forced with it with industrial laws and everything else by these joint cartels who have come here and they're predators, they roam the earth to take all the mineral resources and with sympathetic governments, give it to them and in the process of that, they give them the people's lives as well because their homes are broken, they're trying to pay high mortgages, they're trying to keep up with things, and where do they finish? They throw them on the scrap heap like they've tried to throw the miners that were going out to try and protect tomorrow. Well, there you go, Fred Moore. The union movement will just have to do without him. It's now up to future generations of unionists to carry his flag. Fred always greatly appreciated that every condition we had in the mines, and socially, had to be fought for. And what we had today, or had in his time, was the sum total of everything that was fought for. He would always say, everything was fought for, nothing was ever freely given. And when you got it, you had to fight again to keep it. But he also felt a deep sense of responsibility that you don't rest on your laurels. We have an obligation to future generations to build on what we've got and what we inherited so they come in to a better world with better, better conditions. It was almost like a ultra, ultra marathon of generations. Each generation fought and passed a baton on to the next one and you held that baton and you made sure you did your bit, didn't let the people down who went before you and you passed it on to the next generation. Paddy Gorman, reflecting on his good mate and comrade, Fred Moore. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Mining and Energy Union podcast. But we might give Fred the final word. What do you think? Here he is again, talking on TV to Andrew Denton. The union today is a powerful organisation in the miners, the CMFMEU, Mining and Energy and other things, and they're well geared for struggle and they've got plenty of uh, people around them that support them and we can do without the millionaires but they can't do without us mate. Yeah. Yeah.